You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad to have you here today. We have a special guest, Daniel Crosby. He is a psychologist and the chief behavior officer at Orion. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of a couple of books that have been translated into 12 different languages. And perhaps most importantly, he is a fanatical St. Louis Cardinals fan. This actually came about as a family legacy. So we'll definitely push into that. And he is an amateur hot sauce chef. So Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. We are so glad to have you here today. Yeah, Tommy, my pleasure, man. Daniel, our listeners love hearing our guest stories. So I'd love to start into that. You probably didn't grow up thinking you were going to uh, become a psychologist and especially not a one of the leading voices for financial psychology and behavioral economics. So how did that all come about for you? Well, you know, I certainly didn't. I wanted to be the catcher for the Cardinals, but Yadier Molina has been holding down that job very favorably for quite some time now. So he beat me there. So yeah, I definitely wanted to be the catcher for the Cardinals growing up, but I grew up the son of a financial advisor. So my dad is still an advisor. And so from a very young age, you know, we were having conversations around the table around stock picking, you know, because that was sort of the era of stock picking. So we were talking about, you know, investing and compounding interest and growing your wealth. And so that's sort of the soil, you know, in which in which I grew up. But as I went to college, I went to my freshman year of college and I took a bunch of psychology courses just candidly because they seemed easy and they seemed like sort of an easy fulfillment of some of the general education requirements. I was going to fulfill en route to becoming like my dad, a financial advisor like my dad, because I saw that he did good things for his clients. He was, you know, he's home for dinner every night and made a good living. And I thought, you know, this is a good gig. But I absolutely fell in love with psychology that freshman year out at school. And then equally formative is right after that freshman year of school, I served a two-year mission for my church. So I spent the next two years in Manila, Philippines, you know, learning Tagalog, you know, doing everything from preaching the word to building churches and building schools and teaching English and providing service. And I mean, when you're a kid from Alabama and you're dropped in the most densely populated city in the world in Southeast Asia, you have sort of a hey, <laughs> you, you know, you sort of get the the bins culturally, things shift for you very rapidly. And I had a wonderful experience there and, and just really came to love learning about different types of culture and, you know, different people and why they acted the way they did. And so I came back from that two years sort of rededicated to psychology and said, you know, no, I'm, I'm going to study psychology and did. Got my bachelor's degree in psychology. I started my PhD in psychology three days after I finished my bachelor's, so jumped straight into that. And it was about halfway through that PhD program that I was just absolutely burning out, you know, just the stress of being, you know, when I started counseling 23 years old, like, you know, being 23 years old and trying to help 
dispense wisdom about how to live a life is a heady task, right? I mean, that's a pretty tough thing to be called on to do. And as much as I loved clinical work, I wasn't great at sort of managing empathy fatigue. I wasn't great at not taking my work home. And I was just really you know, burnt out and stressed out by the work of, of 40 or 50 people a week having a very tough time and laying those burdens at my feet and, and trying to help them get to where they needed to go. And so I came to my dad, you know, who's a, a great friend and a mentor and, and said, look, I love human behavior, you know, still, I love thinking about why people, you know, do the things that they do, but I don't want to do it in a medical setting. And, you know, he said to me, you know, there's a ton of psychology in the work that I do, and I don't know anyone who's doing much with that. Now, my dad, you know, who is a wirehouse advisor in, you know, the Deep South, did not know the words behavioral finance or behavioral economics. He didn't have that sort of language to put with it, but it set me on this path where I began to discover those things and really found that at the time, there weren't many people building bridges between sort of the ivory towers of academia and people like my dad, who were boots on the ground, you know, talking to people in their office every day. And so that was, you know, long story short, where I tried to add value. It's incredible. And, you know, listeners, we talk about the financial industry from time to time. And this has been one of the most important evolutions in the financial industry, really over the last just over a decade. And, you know, from my experience, this is the most important part of having a relationship with a professional advisor. Because when it comes down to it, there's a lot of things that you can go learn and study and figure out on your own investing principles, tax law, asset protection. I'm not saying it wouldn't take a lot of time to be really good at that stuff, but it could be done. But one of the things that is very difficult to accomplish, if not impossible, is to actually eliminate emotion from our behavior and to act as this totally rational economic agent. I've just never seen somebody accomplish it. And so to have people like Daniel actually bring some discipline to the financial sector around how advisors and others can help clients make better financial decisions and, and think about their decisions from a psychological standpoint has just been so, so critical. And yet it's often overlooked even today, even though this research is starting to become more and more available my experience is most advisors continue to overlook how critical this is in helping their clients get to a great outcome. Daniel, would you say you still see that as well? Yeah, I think, you know, back when I was doing clinical work, people always wanted first the magic pill, right? Like, what's the medicine that's going to make this all go away? You know, is sort of the first stop. And then the second stop was sort of what are the magic words? Like, hey, doc, like, you say the thing to me that's going to make me stop doing this. And of course, you know, the truth of behavior change and self-improvement is dramatically less sexy than that. And it's sort of this holistic thing and it requires something of us. We're always looking for that silver bullet and investors are looking for that silver bullet too. When just like maintaining good mental health, 
just like good physical health, just like good investing and, and good financial practices. It's a combination of things. It requires patience, discipline, hard work. And we're just looking like, just tell me the stock, like, you know, tell me the stock to put my money in that's going to go to the moon. But, you know, you, you said a couple of interesting things for my book, The Laws of Wealth. I looked at, you know, let's say for a second that financial advisors could do that, right? They could know the end from the beginning and they can't, right? But like, let's say they could know the end from the beginning and they could, they could pick that hot mutual fund for you, that hot stock, that hot ETF. We looked at the highest performing mutual fund of the 2000s. And you got to remember, this is the lost decade, you know, for, for US investing. This is the one 10 year period in history where if you bought and held from, from, you know, 2000 to 2010, you lost money. That had never, that had never happened over any decade previous to that. But over that time, you had, of course, the, the tech bubble and the great financial crisis. So you got double whack. And even if you bought and held, you lost money. Well, this one mutual fund over that time returned. 18.5% per year, which is bonkers. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy anytime. It's especially crazy when the S&P is losing money over that decade. I mean, you would have doubled and tripled your money if you had just bought and held this thing over that 10-year period. And yet, when you look at the performance of the average owner of that mutual fund, the average owner of that mutual fund lost money and they lost a lot of money. Because what happened was the fund would run up, it would get in the news, everyone would be talking about it, people would pile in, and then of course it would come back down to earth like everything does periodically. Everyone would jump out, it would run up again, people would hear about it, they'd pile in, sort of rinse and repeat. And so even if you're investing in incredible assets, right, even if you could know the end from the beginning and pick wonderful stocks, which there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that you can't, right? But even if you could, your ability to capitalize the, off of that is still only as good as your patience. It's still only as good as your fortitude and your ability to stick with it. And so that's where all of these last mile behavioral problems come in is helping people, you know, not only know the right things, because what you suggested is absolutely right. You could spend a long weekend on, you know, a couple of websites and walk away with a perfectly serviceable understanding of how to allocate your assets. It's not hard, right? If you spend a couple of days and dug deep, you know how to budget, you know how to invest your money. It's really not that hard. The tricky part, though, and there's a ton of research to back this up, is sticking with it, behaving yourself all along the way, and having sort of the right actions. You know, we always talk about, and people understand that the idea of selling high and buying low, you know, in the investment world, that's called a portfolio rebalance, but that's kind of the idea. It sounds so simple, and yet it's something that nobody wants to do because nobody wants to buy what what just went down the most, and nobody wants to sell what's going up the most. We know from a pure what's the highest probability of success type outcome that that's the way to achieve it, yet very few people actually do. And listeners, you know, Daniel was talking about this idea of we have lots of data that says trying to pick the hot stock 
probably isn't the right way to go. And that's hard to hear maybe in this world of Robin Hood and GameStop and crowdsourced information on which stocks to buy. And yet there's been lots and lots of research done in the financial space. One of my favorite pieces of research was a 20-year study. And what it looked at was the difference between luck and skill, even from professional managers that were outperforming the market. So in other words, these managers were picking the right stocks consistently long enough that they were outperforming the market. And what we found out very, very quickly from this study is that the number of managers that outperforms what we expect from random chance, because just from random chance, some managers should outperform the market and some should underperform the market. That should happen with random chance. But the number that outperform the market is so much worse than what we expect from random chance that it would take 20 years in a row of outperforming the market for us to finally say to any one individual, you know what, they actually have skill in picking stocks. So when you're hearing your buddy at the gym or at the water cooler, wherever it is on the Zoom meeting, and they're talking about how much they made in stocks, it's we can't call that skill until they do it 20 years in a row. So we're mostly just going to throw those out and ignore them. I know of only four individuals that have done it 20 years in a row where we can actually call it skill. Warren Buffett is one of those. Peter Lynch is another. I don't know of any modern day people that are actively in that space. So when you hear Daniel say that, that's why we really believe advisors and anybody that's helping manage your wealth should be focused on a whole lot more than just trying to pick a hot stock. We know that's not the winning formula. It's a great point you make. You know, I did some research on people's recall of their investments. You know, when you hear at a party or whenever, and this has been big over the last couple of years with some of the the high profile meme stocks. Or crypto. Right, or crypto, right? But to, but to quote this one paper that I that I drew on in the book, you know, people's recall of their purchases was indistinguishable from zero. Like they just had a favorable, they had what's called rosy recollection, right? So they remembered all the winners, they forgot all the losers. And so when you're at the party and someone's telling you, I bought blah, blah coin and it went crazy, or I bought whatever meme stock, what you're not hearing very consistently is the whole picture. And, you know, again, even if let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say they did pick the right thing, what I talk about in all my books is turning probability in your favor, right? Like we talked about, we talked about baseball before we got on and you, you see managers do this with lefty lefty matchups and like all these sort of pitching hitting combinations, you know, anything can happen, but what you want to do is tilt probability in your favor. If you look at the lifetime expected return for the average stock, it is zero. You know, when we look back over the last 20, 30 years, a couple hundred stocks have done all of the heavy lifting, right? The Apples, the Amazons of the world, the ones we all know about. Most individual stocks, 74% of individual stocks go to nothing. So if you're going to buy an individual stock, your base case should be, I'm going to lose all of my money. <laughs> and yet that is not how people think about it because they're 
remembering these sort of one-off individual stories. They're reading the article that says, if you would put $10,000 in Amazon, you'd be a bazillionaire now, and not remembering the 99% of cases, or I guess they're remembering the 26% of cases where it did well and not the 74 where it did poorly. You know, contrast that with a more holistic wealth manager. And we know from research out of Canada that people who have a long-term relationship with an advisor have 2.73 times the wealth of their peers who don't receive advice, even when you control for things like income and salary and, and things like that. So again, it's not brain surgery. The difference between group one and group two is that the, the advised group had an advisor there who kept them out of their own way. And four or five times over that 15-year period, kept them from making the catastrophic mistake, kept them from selling everything in, you know, March of 2020, you know, kept them from selling everything when Trump won the election and there were all these sort of dire predictions. I mean, just in the past few years, there have been some, even this year, there have been some periods of time that have been heralded as catastrophic. And if you gave into the fear you irreparably damaged your ability to compound wealth over time. And that's where an advisor can help. You know, it's interesting, Daniel, when I used to be an advisor in that space, we knew there are two events that happened every four years that were going to cause just a whole bunch of phone calls to our office. Event number one, the presidential election, when half of our clients were going to call and be really scared about what was going to happen to the market. And it was always the half that their person didn't win the election. The people that won the election weren't scared. They weren't calling. But the half, and it didn't matter what party it was or which candidate, it's happened multiple times over my 20 plus year career as an advisor. Always the other half would call and they were scared. And then the other event that would happen every four years was the Olympics. And I kid you not, every time an Olympics would happen, People would call and say, I want to invest. And it was in whatever location the Olympics was, because there was this recency bias that was happening on all this media attention on Argentina. And all of a sudden, everybody wants to invest in Argentina. It's just like clockwork. I could guarantee those were the two periods every four years that a whole bunch of clients were going to be calling our office. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at two indicators here to your first point. So first of all, when you ask people about the economy or like, you know, the how's the country doing? How's the economy doing? What you always see is that whoever's person is not in control, they think the economy is in the toilet. And the people who are in control, their person, they think the economy is doing great. And then the other side wins and it flip-flops. And it's completely, absolutely divorced from reality. And what we see if we look back over the, you know, the history of different parties being sort of in charge in different presidential regimes, we know that the market has made money with Republicans and Democrats alike. And there's basically, it's all noise. Like it's not discernible. There's not, you know, one party's better, one party's worse, even though it's commonly talked about that way. And in fact, in general, people give way too much credit and way too much blame to presidents. And presidents play this up, right? We've seen this recently. And a lot of things is just the fortunes of when you inherit the title of the office, right? You know, we know these folks will gain a lot of jobs or lose a lot of jobs and they'll tout that. Well, 
that's because there was a killer virus, right? I mean, you know, it's like this was this wasn't you out in a field creating jobs. That's because the world fell apart, and you you know you're the beneficiary of that or you're the loser of that. Too much credit, too much blame to both parties. And so one of the most powerful things that you can learn to do is just divorce your politics from investing because like it or not, the other people can make good choices too. And, you know, they're going to figure it out and we're going to be okay. Uh, The thing, the thing with the Olympics is actually really cool. I've never heard that. I mean, it's, it's totally irrational, but it's really interesting, right? Very anecdotal to my prior practice, Daniel, but I think if you talked with other advisors, you'd hear very similar sentiment. No, it's neat. So, you know, what we see is that there is this, it's called mere exposure effect. And it's, you know, sort of a form of recency bias, which is we confuse having heard of a thing with it being good or safe. So you think about the Olympics, right? You think about the Olympics and you're, you know, wherever, Rio, right? You're watching 14 days of beach volleyball in Rio and you're like, yeah, this looks pretty good. Like, you know, like, like, you know, I think I could put some money to work here. Well, that may or may not be a good idea, but what you're doing is you're confusing your familiarity with it, with the desirability of it. And we actually see this all over the place. People in different parts of the country tend to overinvest in whatever is big there. You know, people in the Midwest are overweight agricultural stocks. People on the West Coast are overweight tech names. You know, people in Atlanta are overweight Coke and Aflac. And, you know, it's just we confuse our familiarity with the desirability of something. And this is even why you see, you know, you see a Coke billboard or something and you're like, why is like, we get it. Like we've heard of Coca-Cola. Why is Coca-Cola still advertising or, you know, whoever, Amazon or whoever. And it's just because of this mere familiarity effect, mere exposure effect. If we've heard of something, we find it more desirable. It's how you end up with Trump versus Clinton, you know, you got 350 million competent people or many competent people in, in a country. How is it that we get these two big names? We've heard of them, right? We've heard of these names and we confuse our familiarity with a concept or a person with it being desirable. It's fascinating, Daniel. I'd like to go into a few more topics from your books that you share with investors so that they can be more equipped to kind of understand what's maybe happening under the hood, even though we can't necessarily see it or feel it as we're going through it, if we're aware of it, hopefully that's the first step in starting to actually combat it. Yeah. It's an interesting thing you bring up. So like Daniel Kahneman, who won, you know, sort of the grandfather of this field of mine and who won a Nobel Prize for his research, you know, they've they've asked him many times, you know, how are you different? as a result of having pioneered all this incredible research. And he says like, well, I'm not that different, basically. Like I still do the same stupid things that the next person does. What he says is the big deal though, is is meta-knowledge, right? And meta-knowledge is effectively knowing what you don't know. And so I think if you read one of my books, you're not going to walk away with willpower, you know, nerves of steel and, you know, willpower of steel necessarily, But what you are going to know is you're going to have a better understanding of your rough edges. You're going to have a better understanding of sort of human frailty, and you're going to know where you need help or where you're inadequate. And you're going to know where to automate a process or know where to bring in an advisor 
or speak to a friend. And so I think that's one of the primary benefits of following behavioral finance or or reading books like mine is not that you're going to become aware of these biases and then just magically sort of stop doing those things. But it's more you, you can engineer your life. You can architect your life and your choices in such a way that you don't put yourself in a position to make bad decisions. That's one of the biggest, I think, outcroppings of my having been a, a student of human behavior is that it really, I don't want to overstate this, but it really kind of erodes your belief in free will. Like you, <laughs> not completely, but you do start to say like, you know, most people's choices are, are about as good or as bad as the things and the people they surround themselves with. So I think reading a book like mine makes you really thoughtful about, about who you bring into your life and what kind of ideas and, and people and places you surround yourself with. So, Daniel, I'll give you an example, a situation I hear frequently. This is whether it was from former clients or friends, whoever it may be, but consistently, I will have someone in my life or world who will say something to the effect of, I'm really stressed out. I'm not getting nearly enough time with my family. I'm super stressed as it relates to my financial life. I'm worried every day that if my business goes down a little bit or my practice, whatever it may be, it's going to be massively detrimental. And then they'll turn around the very next week and go spend $75,000 on an outdoor kitchen or $180,000 on a new vehicle. I mean, these like completely, I'll call it frivolous purchases. Frivolous might be too strong of a word. Obviously, they don't feel it's frivolous when they're making it. They'll go make these completely frivolous purchases that will force them right back into that situation of feeling like I have to overwork to make more money. And the trade-off is they're not being the husband or father or community member, church member, whatever is important to them. They're letting all these other things go because they're having to make up for all these massive purchases they've made with extra work and effort. This is a fascinating example, and I, th- I think we can approach it from a couple of angles. You know, first is the happiness angle. You know, when we look at why someone would do something that's seemingly irrational, right? If you're stressed out about money, right? Ostensibly, like if, if you're telling people you're stressed out about money, why do you go buy a new truck or an outdoor kitchen or whatever? Well, it goes back to our notions of happiness. And, you know, one of the things that we know is that people have some sort of misguided notions about the relationship between money and happiness. So here's a like a super quick overview of how money can and can't buy happiness. It can buy happiness up to a point with what we call hygiene factors. That's sort of the psychological term for it. Hygiene factors are stuff like, do I have enough money to afford a safe car, a safe house that'll keep the rain off my head? Can I send my kids to a good school? Can I go to the dentist when I need to? Just, you know, sort of the basics of of that bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Safety, security, you know, enough food to eat, proper medical care. Once that bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy is met, the power of money to bring us happiness just almost falls off entirely. And after that, there's only a couple of ways where we can use money to buy happiness. One is to spend time with people we love, right? So visiting a new place, spending time, going on a trip with your kids, like whatever that looks like, that's one way that that money can buy you happiness. The second way 
is by getting out of stuff we hate. You know, like I hate mowing. I have a big lawn and it's kind of hilly and it's a mess. Like I hate mowing it. So I pay someone to mow my lawn because it makes me happy to not have to mess with it. And, you know, the third way is by giving it away, uh, by being charitable, by engaging in philanthropy. So that's what the research says. But the public perception and what's marketed to us and what the public believes about happiness is that things buy happiness. And that is not the case because of our tendency to acclimate to something, right? So you buy a big house or a new truck or whatever the case may be. Six weeks later, that's not this big, fancy, shiny new truck. That's got, you know, it's got Diet Coke in the cup holders. It's got your kids' baseball cleats in the back. It's dusty. It's just your truck. It's just, it's just how you get from point A to point B. And the, the newness of that has worn off in a way that these other things, it's much more enduring. So we quickly become acclimated to things. And yet it's almost paradoxical because if we think, hey, if I buy a truck, I've got that truck for however long you drive it, 10 years, right? If I go to Italy with my family, that's one week or 10 days or whatever, and then I'm back. But the thing is, the newness, the lack of familiarity, and the time with loved ones lasts forever, whereas that truck or that new kitchen or that new car gets quickly acclimated to. So people think that they're buying happiness. They think that they're buying their, their way out of stress when they're actually piling more stress on because we don't understand the relationship between money and happiness. And then the final thing I'll say is, you know, weirdly, saving money is perceived as a loss and spending money is perceived as a gain, right? Like if I go out and spend $75,000 on a truck, then I've got a truck, right? You know, before I didn't have a truck, now I've got a truck. That's sort of psychologically a gain. Whereas if I take that $75,000 and I put it in, in a retirement account, that is perceived psychologically as a loss and it's painful, because there's the opportunity cost of that $75,000. But again, on the longer term, that $75,000 in the retirement account is kicking off interest and making me more secure and buying me more time. The 75K on the truck is just depreciating. So, you know, Tommy, we're just wired all wrong, all wrong, 180 degrees wrong when it comes to making good decisions about this stuff. Well, Daniel, this has been absolutely fascinating. And we get to move now into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. And actually, in your case, it's going to be three. But the first question is the question that everybody wants to know when really it's the question that I want to know. And I actually have two of them for you. I've only done this one other time for one other guest. So you're just, you have so many fascinating things happening. I want to make sure I ask a couple questions. The first is just trivial, but I have to ask it. How does a guy who grew up in Alabama become a fanatical Cardinals fan? Yeah, this is the most important question you could have asked. So my grandpa grew up in on a ranch in Texas and there were no Texas teams at the time. And St. Louis had this enormous radio tower, KMOX, which is still a force. And the only station that my grandpa could get, you know, 100 years ago, right, was KMOX broadcasts of Cardinals games. So he would sit out at night on his ranch in Texas listening to the Cardinals games and became a huge Cardinals fan. 
my dad grew up in the Bay Area in California and was a huge Cardinals fan in Giants country. And I grew up in Alabama, of course, Braves country. And I live in Atlanta now, which is obviously big time Braves country. But I grew up in Alabama, a Cardinals fan. And we would go see the Braves, like especially when the Braves would play the Cardinals. I was a huge Dale Murphy fan as a kid. I guess I still am. I would want to get a Braves cap or a tomahawk or whatever. And my dad just would not let it happen. I mean, he was just like, absolutely not. No son of mine is a Braves fan. So I actually really like the Braves. They're my second favorite team. And I haven't been quite as strict with my kids, but that's how I became a Cardinals fan. So are the kids Braves fans or Cardinals fans? No, no. The kids are Cardinals. The kids know that they want to inherit some money one day. So they know who they got to cheer for. I'll allow the odd Braves cap. And we did have a big time cheering for the Braves in the World Series last year. That was super exciting. That's excellent. It's excellent. Uh, Nothing wrong with a little home bias every now and then, right? (laughs) Right. I like it. Well, here's my real question for you that I want to know. So you have more than a couple books out there. And actually, your first book that's still out there in the market is called You're Not That Great. And I want to ask about that because I think it's absolutely fascinating. I want our listeners to hear about it. I feel like it's something a lot of people need to hear these days, me included, from time to time. But tell us about that. And then we'll move into my real question. And you can actually dovetail right into it if you'd like. But I do want to let our listeners know about your two books that are out there in the mainstream right now that could absolutely be helpful for them. Yes. So I got lucky. If you remember back, I don't know, 10 or 15 years when TED Talks were sort of all the rage right before they became so wildly commoditized. I got asked to speak at a TEDx event, I don't know, 13 or 14 years ago. And so, you know, I was still pretty young and it was this huge opportunity for someone who had this budding, sort of budding career as a speaker, writer, thinker. And so I was like, you know, I got to make the most of this chance. I, I have to do something a little bit unusual. And I got to thinking about some of my research at the time And it was really all around how an acceptance of our personal mediocrity (laughs) is sort of the, the, the fast track paradoxically to a really great life. You know, so I'll give the example of investing, right? Like the first thing you have to recognize about being a great investor is that you are susceptible to all the same screw ups and, and foibles and biases as the next person. And it's only once you own your own mediocrity in that regard that you can start to put some guardrails around that and you can start to do really, really great things. And I just kept seeing this idea pop up in in other places, right? I'm definitely from sort of the gold star generation, right? This group of kids who was raised to just everybody wins, everybody gets a trophy, everyone's special. And they've done all kinds of research around that. And this this thing, which is well-intended, right? It's a well-intentioned thing to try and be inclusive and try and make sure kids have good self-esteem. Well, they found that it did nothing to help kids' self-esteem and it actually made them do really unsavory things like sort of lie, cheat, and steal to try and hang on to this mantle of, of specialness. And so, you know, when you dig into the research, there's sort of just no substitute for taking a risk falling on your butt sometimes, getting back up, dusting yourself off, working hard, 
and then getting recognition for something that's legitimately hard won. I mean, there's just something in us that we don't take cheap praise well, and there's really no shortcut to self-esteem. You have to risk things and you have to fail sometimes and you have to bounce back and then you have to succeed. Like that's the whole formula. So the book, You're Not That Great, covers just like a handful of ways and the TED Talk. You can go, you know, check that out. Just covers these different ways. Listeners, we will put a link to the TED Talk in our show notes, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, or wherever it may be. And we'll also put links to Daniel's books out there. So we'll make it really easy for you to go get access to those. Yeah, I appreciate it. And then with the books, the two best books of mine, I would say, are are The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. For the industry-focused folks, I think The Behavioral Investor is the better read. If you're not a professional, if you don't work in finance, I would say The Laws of Wealth is the better read. And both of these books were written to just, again, like I said at the outset, take uh, the work of people far smarter than me and put it in approachable, accessible terms that move the needle for everyday investors and the advisors that serve them. It's fantastic. Daniel, this has been absolutely delightful. Really appreciate you coming on the show. And listeners, obviously, we appreciate you. We can't do this without you. Thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you right back here on Beyond the Ordinary next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.